Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hi, I'm Matt Van Clee, one of the teaching pastors at Blue Oaks. Uh, Today we start a series called Facing Giants. And I got to tell you, I can't wait until we start a series in person. Uh, I'm really looking forward to regathering at some point in 2021. But today we start another series online and we're going to get to know a man named David uh, very well in this series. And I want to say something about why we're doing this. Uh, Why would we devote a whole series to studying one man's life? Uh, It's because of what an incredible man David was. Uh, Let me share with you some things about David. He was such a skilled musician that King Saul would summon him to play in his presence because David's playing would relieve his depression like nothing else would. Uh, It was like musical Prozac to Saul. Uh, He was such a fearsome warrior that he won a legendary battle against a great champion when he wasn't even old enough to shave. Uh, He attracted the greatest soldiers in his day to serve under him, and he conquered his nation's enemies in a way that Israel had never experienced before and would never experience again. Uh, He was a poet. Uh, He wrote the Psalms that like express the longing of the human heart for God so deeply that now in our day, thousands of years later, they remain the single most moving and influential devotional literature ever written. I mean, David wrote the prayer book for the human race. Uh, He was a statesman. Uh, He was a statesman of such wisdom and political skill that Israel achieved its highest level of economic well-being and political stability in its history under his reign. I mean, his reign would forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel. And it would exist so powerfully in people's memories that they would refer to the Messiah as the son of David because they hoped that he would reclaim the glory of the days of David. And he was an incredibly attractive person. Uh, We're told several times that he was attractive both uh, physically and in his personality. Uh, Men and women were drawn to his charismatic presence. I mean, think about this. Think about all of this in one man. I mean, he had the poetic soul of Shakespeare. Uh, He had the competitive heart of a Tiger Woods. Uh, He had the musicianship of Beethoven, uh, the statesmanship of Lincoln, and the physical attractiveness of Michael B. Jordan. (laughs) I mean, he was an incredible man. But in the text that we're going to look at today, God says what's really amazing about David was not his external accomplishments or his extraordinary gifting or his good looks. It was his heart. 1 Samuel 16 is where we first meet David in scripture. Israel had been freed from Egypt. Uh, They lived in the promised land under a number of judges like Joshua and Gideon and Samson. And the last judge who led Israel was Samuel. Uh, But the people wanted a king. And so God had Samuel appoint a king. 
The first king was Saul. Uh, he was an impressive man. He stood head and shoulders above the people of Israel. Uh, but Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil. And God said in 1 Samuel 13, 14, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is an old man. Uh, his time is close to done on this earth, and God speaks to him. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. All right, so here's what happens. God tells Samuel, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God, we've already got a king and it's not good for my health to appoint a new king when there's still an old one. And God says, just trust me. And so Samuel goes to this little obscure village called Bethlehem. And you'll notice in the text, it says in verse four, that the elders of the town trembled when they saw Samuel was coming. Uh, Samuel was not known for his small talk, and they wondered who had sinned. You know, someone must be in serious trouble. And Samuel said, it's okay, God's going to give a great honor to this town. Uh, the leader of his people is going to come from Bethlehem. Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event. And you might imagine that his arrival would create quite a stir in this obscure little village. And Jesse is so proud, uh, he can hardly stand it. Now, you've got to picture this scene for a moment. Jesse introduces his first son, his heir. I mean, he's always known that his firstborn was destined for greatness. Uh, he was class president, you know, quarterback of the football team, uh, an outstanding young CEO. He rolls up in his brand new Tesla. You know, he's got a commanding presence. He walks in the room and he just dominates it. 
And Jesse says, this is my son, Eliab. And God says, he's not the one. And so Samuel passes that word on. And then Jesse has son number two, Abinadab, and he's not the one. And then son number three, Shema. And then he goes through all seven sons. They don't all get named, but they all one by one are paraded before Samuel. And no one is the one. And Samuel is wondering by this time, like, God, why would you have me come into this, into the middle of nowhere, into this small, obscure town and reject seven sons? And so he says to Jesse, are these the only sons you have? Which seems kind of like a dumb question, right? Don't you think Jesse would be aware of how many sons he has? Are these the only sons you have? And Jesse says almost as an afterthought, well, they're still the youngest. We still don't get his name yet. You know, there's, there's still like, what's his name? They're still the youngest. And it's important to understand that in Hebrew, the term the youngest meant not merely the last born. It also meant like the lowest in rank. They're still the most unlikely son of all the sons. There's a real big significance in that day to birth order. Uh, there's some of that in our day. Uh, if you're not the firstborn, have you ever noticed that the firstborn had certain unfair advantages? Uh, like in the photo album, you ever notice that? Jesse's photo album would have been something like this. He'd say, you know, here's my son, Iliab. You know, these are the pictures of my firstborn, Iliab. Here's Iliab being born. Here's Iliab when he's an hour old. Here's Iliab on his second day and so on, like every day of Iliab's life because he's the firstborn. And then there's son number two, Abinadab. You know, here's Abinadab being born. Uh, here's Abinadab going to preschool and so on. And then there's son number three, you know, here's Shema. Here's Shema being born. Here's Shema going to first grade. And then you'd get down to the last photo album and you'd open it up and you'd say, you know, here's David being born. Man, we've got to get more pictures of David. <laughs> well, Jesse says there's still the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. He's not the one. And then Samuel says, go send for him. We'll wait. Now imagine what that must have been like. I mean, it had to take quite a while to track down this kid who's out tending sheep. Samuel says, we'll wait. We won't sit down until he comes. And so they're all just standing there. Seven sons, all like the first runner up in the Miss America pageant, trying to look like things are okay when they're all hoping that the real winner dies or something, something so that they can actually take over. Well, they finally find David and he comes pulling up in his old pickup truck and God looks at David and says, he's the one. Now there's a theme going on here related to the birth order that I just want to point out. Uh, it kind of runs throughout the Old Testament. Uh, remember, birth order was very significant in that culture. But consider how birth order was followed for the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Ishmael was born first, but God chose Isaac. Uh, Esau comes first, but God has the line go through Jacob. Uh, 10 other brothers are born first, but God chose Joseph. Seven other brothers are born first, but David, the youngest, becomes king. So what's God saying? Is God saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled brats and that he likes middle or younger kids better? <laughs> I think that might be part of it. We have to understand that in those days, everything went to the firstborn. 
all rights, all property, all privileges. That's just the way the power structures went. It's like God is saying, I'm breaking into the ordinary cultural practices of human life. Uh, he's doing a new thing. God is saying that old limitations and old boundaries about who counts and who doesn't count don't apply anymore. Not in God's kingdom. God's doing something new. And he's not bound to any human system or power. Uh, God is at work now and his kingdom is going to shake some things up. God summarizes this in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I want to say a few things about this because it's important that we understand this rightly and don't distort it. So let me just say what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that gifts or talents or strengths don't matter to God. Uh, sometimes Christians, even uh, teachers uh, that I've heard, talk as if things like gifts or strengths are bad things. As if God prefers people that have no talent at all. And the problem is, this denies the doctrine of creation, which says, which says that God made all things, including talents and gifts and strengths. God gave them out, and God fully intends to use them. Just a little later on in this chapter, in verse 18, look what we read about David. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. The text doesn't say David is a mediocre musician, a coward, and a poor speaker, and funny-looking, and so God could really use him. I mean, it doesn't say that. What 1 Samuel 16, 7 points out is not that gifts or talents or strengths are bad things or things God can't use. What it points out is that the human race inevitably tends to obsess over external appearances. We tend to think of charm or attractiveness or ability that leads to outward accomplishments as all that matters. So if I have those things in obvious, visible ways, then I'm blessed. And if I don't have those things in obvious, visible ways, then I'm insignificant. I don't count. And we forget about the heart. And what God says over and over, and what God may be saying to you right now, is in his kingdom, everyone counts. In God's kingdom, everyone has something to offer. In God's kingdom, everyone's contribution matters. The last as well as the first. So if we take our best gifts, whatever they are, and we don't compare them to anyone else, and if we take a heart full of devotion and we lay those gifts and we lay that heart at God's feet, watch out because we're going to see God work in ways that we couldn't even imagine. It's easy for us to look at someone else and compare ourselves to their charm, ability, or accomplishments. And if we're not careful, we can begin to devalue the gifts and talents we possess because they're not as good as others. I love what Matt said, that in God's kingdom, everyone counts. Everyone has something to offer. Because in God's kingdom, everyone has been given unique gifts, talents, and abilities. From the very beginning of Blue Oaks, we've had a foundational value of serving according to our giftedness. 
That simply means engaging in what God is doing with and through our community of faith. The recent toy drive was a great example of people coming together to serve others. As we continue planning to resume in-person services, there are more opportunities than ever to discover where your giftedness fits in. There will be opportunities such as set up and tear down of facilities and greeters on Sundays, adult small group leaders and people who pray for others, along with a wide range of roles within our kids and student ministries where you can make a difference with the next generation. We're also exploring non-traditional ways you can serve. Are you a project manager, an instructional designer, social media or marketing professional? Can you mentor others? Are you a writer or an editor? There's a role you can fill in God's kingdom and in his church. You see, when we use our gifts and abilities, we're demonstrating a heart after God by engaging in his work. If you'd like to know more about the opportunities that are or will be available, click the latest news button at blueoakschurch.org. Let's rejoin Matt now as we continue our look at what set David apart. All right, now I want to talk about three things that I believe made David's heart great in God's sight. And I hope these are ways God is going to build my heart and your heart. I hope we become people with great hearts this year. And so as I walk through these three things that made David's heart great, I invite you to do a little heart check to see where your heart measures up. All right, number one is this. I believe you'll see as we get to know David that his heart was characterized by a sense of passion. Uh, we see this characteristic of him in a number of ways in a number of different times in scripture. In 2 Samuel 23, there's a story where David and his men are pinned down by a band of Philistines. This is what the text says. David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. This is a moment of unbelievable drama. And of course, all the troops are there and they're watching this. And we would understand that they're all thirsty but there's just enough water for the king. And David is so moved by their sacrifice and their courage. The text says he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it for me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. He's so moved by what they did that in spite of all of his thirst, he's saying to his men, I'll be with you in thirst and deprivation as well as in prosperity. I will not use the kingship to get my comfort at the expense of your pain. We're in this together, you and me, win or lose, live or die. It's like a, a scene from a Mel Gibson movie or something. One day God was uh, being challenged by a pagan giant and everyone was intimidated. David says, I'll fight Goliath. I'll fight the giant. I want a heart like that. I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that was cold and calculated and protected and safe and hard. I don't. I don't think you do either. I long to have a heart like David, 
And to be a part of a community like that, a community of passionate hearts. All right, the second thing about David is that he was characterized by deep reflection. Uh, David was not just passionate, but he was deeply reflective. He says at the end of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, this is a rare combination when you think about just these first two traits, a complete passion on the one hand, yet deep reflection on the other. But that was David. And I'll tell you what I think. I think David's heart was formed in all those years when he was alone with God. He was out in the middle of nowhere, kind of like this place. Uh, He was just out shepherding sheep. I think that's the only explanation for a soul that was so deep that it could write words like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. You know, David spent much of his life waiting. I mean, when he was a kid, he just tended sheep. And then there's this amazing day when Samuel comes and anoints him king. I mean, think about this. Imagine the next day. Because, you know, David doesn't just march into Jerusalem after, you know, this and kind of sit on his throne. Saul is still there. Samuel has left. What does David do the next day? He goes back to the sheep. I mean, just imagine this happening to you. You've just been anointed the king of Israel and there's no one to tell except the sheep. You know, hey, sheep, I'm the king. Not much excitement there. All those years he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness. They were not wasted years. He was learning to be alone with God and he was growing real deep. And then there were all those years that he hid from Saul. He lived in caves. He he ran from one spot to another. Those were not wasted years. He was growing very deep with God. In solitude and quiet, God was shaping a deep heart. And God wants to do that for you and me if we just give him a chance. I think I can make a case that the years when David's heart was most vulnerable to sin were after he had reached the top and became the king and had everything. Because then he no longer had to be alone with God. I want to have a heart that goes deep with God. And one of the things that I've done is kind of Uh, preparation for this series is just started reading through the Psalms, so many of which were attributed to David. And when I started, there's a great image in the very first Psalm. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. We can be like a tree planted by rivers of water where our roots go so deep into the nourishment of God's presence that we just flourish. Our lives become an act of love to God and to the people around us. But you know, the reality is we can't develop roots fast and roots don't work that way. When was the last time you described someone by saying, you know, that person is hurried and frantic and deep. I mean, you could be hurried or you can be deep but you can't be both and you have to choose now this doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and go out and be a shepherd someplace that's not god's plan 
but it does mean that you will have to guard regular, unhurried times alone with God. You'll have to guard that. You'll have to arrange for that. Think of how you would be different if you had time to be shepherded by God. I'll give you one challenge as we enter into the series. Make this year a year in your life when you commit to reading through the Psalms. I mean, you'll learn a lot about David in the Psalms. More people have learned to pray through the Psalms than any other source. Some of the Psalms will teach you how to worship and how to express great thanks to God, uh, great joy to God. Uh, Some of the Psalms will allow us to express to God a confusion or a complaint. Some of them will teach us how to confess, uh, how to repent. Maybe you'll want to write your own Psalms of joy or thanksgiving or confusion or repentance. But immerse yourself in the Psalms this year. And I'll promise you this, if you will immerse yourselves in the prayers of David and his Psalms, your heart will not be the same. It will get deep. It really will. Well, David had a heart that was characterized by complete passion. And I want to have a heart like that. And then he had a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. And I want to have a heart like that. And we'll talk about one more uh, characteristic of David's heart in just a moment. Although David lived long before Jesus, he models for us what's necessary to grow a heart after God's. Time. Time with God. Getting to know God. Just as roots don't develop overnight, neither does a heart for God. It develops over time with reflection and intentional practices that grow our spiritual roots. This is the goal behind the spiritual growth initiative we're launching this year. Hearts that go deep with God. You see, growth happens as we engage our knowledge and beliefs about God with spiritual practices. Practices like prayer, Bible study, solitude, giving, even journaling, much like the Psalms or David's journals. You see, knowledge about God is not enough. Focusing on the head over the heart only results in an imbalanced spiritual life. And our desire is a Christ-centered life, to think, act, and be more like Jesus. Over the next weeks and months, you'll hear more about this spiritual growth initiative and how you can engage in it. I believe that as you do, 2021 will be a catalytic year of spiritual growth for you. All right, the last thing I want to talk about today that characterizes David Hart is what I want most of all, and that is an undivided love. Uh, David's heart was characterized by the most amazing undivided love. David loved people with the loyal heart of a shepherd who just keeps loving the sheep, even the stubborn sheep. Consider some of the people in David's life. Uh, Saul, David's predecessor to the throne. Uh, He was once a promising young king himself, and then he became tormented by his jealousy of David. And so he was constantly deceiving him. Several times he tried to kill him. And what's most amazing is how through all of that, David loved him. Twice David could have killed Saul and he would have been justified, but he refused to do it. And he expressed his loyalty back to Saul. 
And when Saul finally died, David wrote one of the most beautiful poems ever written to lament for him. It's amazing how David could find tears for a man like that. I mean, he knew all about Saul's faults better than anyone. And he knew about Saul's possibilities. And yet he loved him to the end. And then there's Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son, would have been his main rival for the throne. I mean, you would expect them to be at each other's throats, but they had one of the greatest friendships in history. And when they had to be separated, the writer of scripture says in 1 Samuel 20, they wept together. They wept together, but David wept the most. Then there's his son, Absalom, his renegade rebel son. Absalom tried to overthrow his own father and take the throne. And in the end, Absalom was defeated and he was killed in battle. And David got word that his forces had been victorious and his throne was secure and he would live and he would reign. But his only response was to mourn for his boy. Oh, Absalom, my son, he said. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What a heart David had. When David loved you, you stayed loved because there was grace and love in his heart for the most stubborn sinner. I don't know about you, but I wanna love like that. As I was putting together this message, I thought of my wife and my kids, and I thought of my friends, and I thought of some of you. I thought of some people that I know who don't know God, so many people that I cross paths with. And if I could get to the end of my life and have them say about me, he loved with an undivided love, and he had grace and love in his heart for fallen people. And when he loved someone, they stayed loved. I mean, if I could get to the end of my life and have that said about me, I think I'd be a success in God's eyes, no matter what else I do or don't do. And if that can't be said of me, no matter what else I do, I think I'd fail. I want a heart that loves with an undivided love. As I was thinking about David and his undivided love, I got to thinking about us. Uh, what if God were to say of us, this is a people after my own heart. I mean, they followed me with passion and they worshiped me from the depths of their hearts and they were deeply reflective and they loved with an undivided love. What if God were to say that of you? The band is going to lead us in a song now. And I'd like to ask you to just reflect on your life. Let's follow the example of David. who was a man after God's own heart. He reflected on his life. And then we're going to sing. Sing with a kind of passion that David had. And as you go about your day and you go about your week, may you go with a David-like undivided love for God and for people. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.